0: We're going to get to John chapter 1, the ending here in just a second. But before we do, I want to talk to you about a concept in biblical studies. And, and I think it will be helpful. It's, it's the sort of thing to kind of pick up. It's helpful as a, as a Bible student. It's also helpful as a, a listener of sermons. All right. It's super helpful as a preacher of sermons. But unless you're doing that, this, this will be helpful. And, it, and it's for shorthand, I'm just going to call it the range the range of application that a text can have, okay? So to kind of bring that thought to, to the front here is sometimes you can listen to a sermon about a text, right? And one preacher will preach it a certain way and another preacher will preach it another way. And you sort of walk away with this feeling like Well, they can make up whatever they want it to say, you know? And and that's not true. Uh, Well, it is true. We could do that, but you ought not do that, okay? You ought not do that, and you should stay within the range. You should stay within the range. And so different Bible uh, text, what what you're attempting to do when you study the Bible is to determine what the original author intended for the original audience to hear. Okay, that's very important. That is of utmost importance. What did the original author, in this case John, intend by what he said for the original audience, his readers, to hear? And that's important. Uh, I'll give you a couple of under, ways to understand that. My sons speak in a language that I do not understand, okay? They use words like cap, bussin', and drip. And, um, and yeah, I stop laughing, college students. I don't... I don't understand what they're talking about, all right? And they'll say it all in different ways. I understand the word. I don't understand the way that they are using it. And I will often make them repeat the phrase that they just said in a way that uses English. And so that I can understand it. And what I'll explain to them is this. It's totally fine to speak to your friends that way. And English evolves. It has evolved for a long time. I used uh, words in a way my parents didn't use. But it's important. And this is what I'm trying to get across to them. It's important that in communication, that the other person understands what you're talking about. All right? That's important. So since I'm old compared to them, then I need them to speak old. Um, Not King James, but, you know, just a little bit older English. And so they do. Now, you can see the same thing happen with a husband and a wife. Jackie and I are both of similar age and we have similar vocabulary. And so our conversations are um, less hard to understand, but they still have a dynamic range. They still have a range of meanings. And this happens in any husband and wife conversation. A husband may look at his wife and say, you look nice. All right, the words there have a certain meaning. The words are understood by the wife and they convey a certain meaning. But the dynamic range, the range of what he could be saying is, uh, is layered, right? You understand? He could be literally telling her, um, the, the choice of clothing you picked out there, they go together. That's what he could be saying. He could be just saying aesthetically, those pants look like they match that shirt, right? So that's good. He could also be saying something of effort. Uh, it takes uh, her more effort to, uh, you know, get ready. And so he could be saying, I don't understand how you did it, but I know that you did something with makeup, something with hair and heat and things, and, and uh, it looks good. It could just be saying, the effort that you put into getting ready this morning was great, and it's appreciated. And that's good. You look good could mean either of those things. He could also be saying, I am attracted to you. Your shape the color of that shirt with your skin tone, I dig it, right? That that could be what he's saying when he says, you look nice, right? So you see how all of these ranges could be meant, one author, same words to one audience. At the same time, he could be saying something much, much more, but he would say that more with one eyebrow raised and a smirk, right? And he's implying certain things. So all four of those are potential meanings with, you look nice. Same thing happens in the text. And many a marital fights have happened with not the speaker, not the word selection, but the dynamic range of what that word could mean one speaker one phrase one here multiple meanings when you study the bible you're going to understand and see that we can look at this text and today i could have a implication an application a major meaning from the text that we're going to take and run with whereas another preacher could have a different meaning altogether but both are right how do we know both are correct how do you know it's because the range while it is varied has limitations There are certain meanings and certain definite boundaries. There are things that the text just does not say, and you're not allowed to preach those things, okay? And so as a listener, you ought to be listening for the range, the boundaries, and say, well, it fits within this range. I'll give you an example. In today's text, it's going to mention Jesus. It's going to say something along the lines to Nathaniel that when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, if I was to stand up here and say, you need to go out, and purchase a fig tree put it in your house and when you want to pray you need to sit under that fig tree because according to john chapter one that is when jesus sees you that is not what this text is teaching and you may ask well how do you know well it's because there is no evidence there is no idea that the author john would have intended it to mean that Nathaniel would not have understood that. Jesus would not have used the phrase in that way and Jews did not use the phrase in that way. They used that phrase for two specific meanings, okay? Two of which I am not sharing with you this morning. I'm just saying that that's not one of them. In fact, I want to almost tease you and invite you to go and listen to the podcast because every week uh, Pastor David and I post both sermons and his sermon, I think we'll deal more with the fig tree situation than I am going to do today. So dynamic range or a range of meaning. So which meaning are we going to tackle this morning? Well, I'll tell you in just a minute after I pray. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for what you have shared with us in your word, God. I pray that our minds are open to your text, that we can learn anew from it. God, we, we, we do pause. And we thank you that... Your word is dynamic. It is living. That we can come to it again and again and again and be challenged by it to live our lives in new and special ways. So God, I pray that we would approach this text with an open mind to hear an, yet another application of what it is that you are teaching us. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. John chapter 1, verse 43 is where I'm going to begin. I'm not putting a lot of the text this morning on the preaching TV this morning. I want you to open a Bible and hold that in your hands. We will put some of it up there, but not a lot of it. Follow along with me as I read this. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him, well, come and see, Philip said. And then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he asked about him, he says, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This guy's not a liar. Verse 48. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus answered, Rabbi, or Rabboni, your text might say. Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Verse 50, and Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under a fig tree? You all, or y'all, or you guys, if you're up north, You guys will see greater things than this. Then he said, Truly, I tell you, y'all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It is a great story. To be honest with you and transparent with you, this is one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. I know as a preacher, I'm supposed to say they are all equally my favorite, but that is not true. This one is one of my very, very favorite. I love it because it's so simple. I love it because it is the Christian life. It's what you're supposed to do. You meet Jesus, you go find somebody else and introduce them to Jesus. That's the way that it works. It's the way that it always works. In fact, in the Bible, I can't think of any illustrations in which somebody doesn't meet Jesus and immediately go tell other people about the person that they found. And so it does challenge us. The immediate and the primary application of this text is to tell us within the context of Jesus amassing followers that people who were introduced to Jesus immediately went and told other people. So when you read that, you ought to be challenged to go tell other people about Jesus. You also ought to be convicted if you have not told other people about Jesus. You know, there's another part of it that I really love. Nathaniel says, when he's told about Jesus, he has like a, a doubt or a question or a curiosity. He says, Can any? I don't. You said that like the one that we we're waiting on is from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And instead of Philip feeling the need to defend Jesus' honor, he just <laughs> I don't to come and see. Just come and see. It's not my job. It's not your job. It's not Philip's job to defend the honor of the God of the universe. All right? He's pretty good at that himself. Let him do that. You're just saying, hey, look, I don't, I don't know. I'm just telling you this is Jesus. So it's such a great story. And then there's all sorts of theology in there with all the different kind of meanings in the fig tree and all that sort of stuff. But that's not the way that I'm going to preach it this morning. Okay? That's the main primary application. In fact, on um, February 16th, 2019 at 9 30 a.m. right here, I preached that sermon with that meaning, all right? So you can go back and listen to that if you should want to. Our approach this morning is to focus in on two concepts. The first is found, the word found. Did you see it when I read the text earlier? Did you, did you pick up on that? You should have. I tried to I try to emphasize it when I said it, which you can see it right there at the beginning here. Look at this, in verse 43, he found Philip and told him, that's Jesus. He found Philip and told him, follow me. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one. Which I always thought is funny because Philip, you didn't find nobody. Jesus found you, you know? Look at him taking credit for what Jesus did down here, but people do that. And so there's this idea of finding. That's definitely a theme that is in the text. But what's important, What I wanna share with you this morning is that they found a person, not a thing. That's important. We need to kind of like get on that and sit in it and meditate on it, right? They found not a thing, not not a belief, not an idea, not a method. They found the one that Moses wrote about. We as Christians sometimes lazily slip into the idea that Christianity is primarily about a belief structure. It's primarily about ideas. That if you are to think the right things in the right order, then you are a good Christian. And listen to me. Correct thought is important. It's wildly important in your correct thought. What you think you will do, what you believe you will act upon, but it is not the principal thing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus, the relationship, is the primary thing not exactly what it is that you think about him, but that you know him. Jesus says in this very same book, John chapter 5, verse 39, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me. It's important. Jesus doesn't say, don't pour over the scriptures. You ought to do that. He's just saying, just make sure the emphasis is on knowing me and not just knowing ideas. They don't find a thing. He doesn't run up to Uh, Nathaniel says, hey, listen, I found it. I discovered the Da Vinci Code." All right? That's not what he says. He says we found the one. He also doesn't say that we found a method or a way of doing things. Similarly to thoughts, we think that if you do the right things the right way, in the right order, to the right degree, and consistency, then you are a good Christian. And again, while doing the right things is important, it's not the main thing. Being a follower of Jesus, we ought to do what the leader does. But the important thing is that we make sure that we are following the leader, that Jesus is the one that we're following, and not our whims or public opinion, those sort of things. That we need to do what is the right thing to do because our leader does it, not because we are just pious in that way. Let me give you this example. Let's say that you are preparing a holiday meal, like a Christmas meal, and you are thinking to yourself, when you have all the traditional and the right foods out on the table, that something is missing. You can feel it within your heart. You can see it within your mind. Something is missing, and what you discover is that it is someone. Maybe there's a guest that's not going to be at dinner this year because they have passed away sadly um, since last Christmas. Maybe it is a person who has moved far away and they can't make it to the miller. Maybe it's just something you don't get along with anymore and they are not gonna come to your Christmas dinner. Either way, the problem with the something missing is that it is a someone and you will not find the solution to that problem in a cookbook. Do you understand what I'm saying? Everybody picking that up, you're following with me? That the problem is a someone, not a something, and they say, we have found the one. Then logically, we have to ask our question, then who is it that they found, right? Who is the one that Moses was writing about? Now, no one in this room has any confusion on who they're talking about, Jesus. I think the question that I come up with is, then what is it about Jesus that makes him the one that Moses wrote about? What is it about Jesus that changes Nathaniel? What is it about Jesus that makes Jesus, um, I want to say giggle, but the idea of Jesus giggling is weird. Uh, uh, What is it that makes Jesus slightly laugh uh, at this idea of like, you just, You thought it was cool I saw you under a fig tree? I'm about to blow your mind. What is it? Well, the other concept is not the found, but there's another concept in there. Did you pick it up? It is sun. S-O-N. Sun. And this shouldn't be strange to us. This shouldn't come out of left field because, in fact, last week when I told you that the prologue was going to introduce certain themes and ideas to us, it is already introduced. You already... Read it if you're reading John at this point. The original audience would have already heard the original author talk about and bring up this idea. We talked about the prologue last week, which is John chapter 1, 1 through 18, but we primarily focused on 1 through 15. 1 through 5, really, but then we kind of dabbled down in these. Y'all remember that? We never really talked about 16, 17, and 18, but look at what verse 14 says. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory as the one and only what? Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. In the prologue, the emphasis or the focal point of the word being the communication of God has shifted slightly, same person, but has shifted over to the son who is the revelation of God. In the word, we hear God. In the son, we see God. That's what John has already told us he's about to tell us about, and then he does. That's what he's gonna do in these next texts. So let me read uh, some verses to you, 44 through 45, and then we'll put them on the screen. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one. Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of, what? Joseph from Nazareth. All three main characters in this text are going to use the phrase, son of. But what they put after that makes all the difference in the world. The son of Joseph is the way that we commonly use the word um, son, all right? We commonly use the word as a male child. So all of you dudes in the room, you are the son of someone, right? You are the male child of someone. And if you have a child, a male child, then you have a son. That's the way that we commonly read the text. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. We ought to read the text that way. When Philip is using the idea of the son of Joseph, he is merely... Um, indicating which Jesus it is. They would have known a lot of Jesuses. There wasn't only one person named Jesus in the first century, there's a ton of Jesus and a ton of Judases too, all right? And so if that doesn't blow your mind, there's a bunch of friends named Judas and a bunch of friends named Jesus. And so what Philip is saying here is this is Jesus, like Joseph's child. And they're thinking, oh yeah, I know three. And that one's, yep, that's the one that I was thinking about. It's Jesus, son of Joseph. This practice, because they didn't have last names, this is the practice that developed into us having last names that sound like Richardson and Jackson and Wilson. That eventually, somewhere along the line, Richard's son got the last name Richardson. All right? And so that's the same practice that he's doing here. But unlike the others, this is the only one that's a little incorrect. I mean,. He is Joseph's adopted son, but he is not Joseph's son. So what's the emphasis here? The emphasis here is um, that he is building up the idea of substance, that Jesus is human. That's what it means. The son of Joseph just means that Jesus is a human. So he had Mary's eyes and Mary's nose mary's dimples and mary's skin tone in this situation he had everything from the mama and nothing from the daddy all right it's just the way that it works in biology and so he looked a lot like his mama he was a human he needed to to bathe he needed to learn to walk he spoke words he felt emotion jesus was as much human as you and i are human that's exactly what the prologue has already said verse 14 says the word became flesh that's the idea John is trying to emphasize this idea that this Jesus, my friend, the person I know, the one that I want you to believe in, he was human. It not only speaks to the idea that he was human, fully human, but that also that he stepped into a context and a culture and a people. He says to him, we found the one that Moses wrote about. Moses is their originator their leader he's the he's the George Washington and the Abraham Lincoln and the Martin Luther King Jr. and the and the Thomas Jefferson all rolled into one that's Moses all right he spoke about this one and Jesus is stepping into that Jewish culture and so when we're understanding this we need to try to look through that lens and so that begs the question what did Moses write about this one right right does anything pop in your mind? Anything come to the front of your brain? When we think about the, 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 the books that Moses wrote, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books, we call those the Pentateuch. In the Pentateuch, is there anything that pops in your mind that makes you think of Jesus? Well, there should be. One of them is when God is speaking to Adam and Eve after they have fallen, after they have uh, rebelled against him. He promises that one day, a descendant from Eve will crush the head of Satan. So it's like one day a child from Eve will be victorious in this situation. Uh, fast forward a couple hundred years, and God is speaking to Abraham, and he tells Abraham, One day one of your grandchildren is going to come, and all the world will be blessed through that child. That's a promise, that's talking about Jesus. And then I can't help but think of the first one that popped in my mind is the time in which Moses is speaking about or writing about his own experience in which one night, one scary night, the Jews as slaves of Egypt take one male lamb and kill it per family. And those families that are found underneath the blood are spared from death that is speaking or signifying that is the one. So it's very important that we understand this, that the son of Joseph is a human and that humans are born just like Eve's descendant would be, just like Abraham's descendant would be, and that humans eventually die. And in this case, that one would be um, die through sacrifice. And so this is what is being taught of. This is the idea that is being brought to the front when we talk about the son of Joseph. But Philip, Called him that. Philip called him that. But Nathaniel also uses the same phrase to do something entirely different. Look at verses 46 through 49. It says, This is Nathaniel who's like, Can anything come good out of Nazareth? I hate that place. Um, come and see, Philip answered. And Jesus saw Nathaniel coming He says, This guy's really honest. Verse 48, he's like, How do you know me? And he said, Well, when you were sitting on that tree, I saw you. Verse 49, he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. We've gone from son of Joseph to son of God, you are the king of Israel. So much in this exchange, so much theology, so many other ways to preach this text. But uh, what I want you to notice is that when Nathaniel recognizes and receives Jesus as who he is, then he instantly calls him the son of God. Now, that's a phrase for us. If I said the Son of God, if I just walked out to Target or Walmart and I walked in there and I said, hey, who's the Son of God? Everybody, regardless of their background, I think nearly everybody would say, "Ah, you're talking about Jesus, right? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, we just use it sort of as a synonym. But in the first century, you would be hard pressed to find any Jew that would just randomly or haphazardly call anybody the Son of God. It was heretical. You would not say that unless you really believed that this person standing in front of you was the son of God. But what is he talking about there? Is he talking about substance? Well, no, I think what he's talking about there is likeness, that he acts. He is, going, he is portraying God, not just because he's acting like God, but because God is his father and he is his son. It's has already been spoken about in John. Remember the word was with God and the word was God. In verse 18, I already read that. No one has ever seen God. The one and only son who himself, God, and is at the father's side. He has revealed him. The son of God resembles the father. He is like his father, God. That's what's being taught in this idea. In the book of Daniel, we get this idea of uh, son and likeness being equated. You remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel's three friends are thrown into the fire and the king walks over there and he's looking into the fire and he says, didn't we throw three people in there? are like, yeah, we threw three people in there. And he says, well, I see a fourth one and he appears to be like a son of a God. That's what he says. There's a likeness there that he appears to look like that. I have three sons and at any given moment, if you're ever around any of them, they can remind you of me in their likeness, in the way that they act, in the way that they behave. Um, only one of them looks like me but the three of them act like me and it has nothing as you well know to do with biology they just are like me because why because i am equally all three of their dad right and they are equally all three my sons we look we act like we resemble there's a likeness so the son of joseph is a human and the son of god is divine that's quite a person to find right Quite a person that has stepped into this world scene. And yet there's one more description of Jesus in the story. And it is Jesus himself who says the words. Look at verse 50. And Jesus responded to him almost with a giggle. He says, do you believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? Y'all are going to see so much greater things. And then he said to him, truly I tell you, y'all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of God. Man, Joseph, God, and the man. This is, as I said, Jesus' nickname for himself. This is his favorite nickname for himself. He calls himself this more than he calls himself anything. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the son of man 13 times. And obviously Jesus is not saying that he is biologically a male child of all of humankind. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying the same thing as son of Joseph, nor is he saying that out of all of mankind, I act just like all of them that's not what he's saying it's not what is being communicated there's something greater and out of all of these of course it comes from jesus so it's going to be much deeper there's all sorts of meanings if we're not talking about substance that he is a human if we're not talking about likeness that he is a god uh or that he is god we're talking about in this one we are talking about what i would say is representation The son represents the father. In Matthew chapter 21, there's a sad story Jesus tells about a rich person who buys a set of land, a farm. And he develops the farm and he has employees that work the farm, but he doesn't live there. And so at one point he sends some employees to go check on the farm. Uh, It has produced fruit. And so he's going to go check on the produce. And so he sends these servants and the, the workers at the place decide they don't respect they're uh, the, the landowner. And so they, they beat up the representatives. They kill a few of them and they send them all back home. And the man actually sends several delegations of representatives to go there. And finally he says to himself, then if they keep beating up and killing my servants, then maybe I will send my son as my representative. He will go there and they will respect him. The concept is that the son represents the father. Turns out they don't. They end up taking him outside the city and killing him. And it's a whole different theological meaning, but the idea is still there. The son, the child, whether it's a daughter or a son, represents the father, the mother. The children represent the parents. Jesus is using a concept when he says son of man in that way, representative, but it is rooted deeply within Daniel of all places. In Daniel chapter seven, Daniel the prophet has a dream. He has a vision from God in which he sees one that looks like the son of man has the likeness of a human standing in front of the ancient of days and the concept there is mind-blowing it is crazy for them to think about it Daniel is thinking he says I saw a vision in which a human stood in front of God as if he deserved to be there there is no human that deserves to stand in front of God If God were to sit right here, we would all do well to fall on our face and worship him because he is superior, he is supreme, he is other, he is righteous, he is holy, and we are not. And yet Daniel has a vision in which a human stands in front of God and calls him the son of man. It is this representative role in which somebody with human likeness stands in front of God and represents humanity. That's what he's talking about when he calls himself the son of man. Daniel said he saw the son of man coming in the clouds, And so remember when Jesus is uh, being tried, the little fake trial that they did, and they said, are you the son of God? And he says, you've said it, but you're gonna see the son of man coming in the clouds. He says it like right to their face, right in their eyeballs. He's like, I ain't afraid of you. I am the son of man, right? He claims, he identifies himself as God. There's another thing that's going on. Man, I keep forgetting to change these. This one right here. When he says, nope, next one you will see the angels ascending and descending on the son of man this is this one's daniel 7 this these two are genesis 28 you remember jacob abraham isaac his son jacob his son jacob has a dream at one point in which he sees a ladder is what we grew up calling it, but a staircase would be a better translation of it. A staircase going from heaven to earth and angels going up and down the staircase. The imagery of that, of that story was that God is other, but he is bringing his message down. He is delivering the message. He is filling that gap, that there's a chasm between God and humanity and God is taking it upon himself to, to, to bridge that chasm, to fill that gap. That's what was happening there. So when Jesus says, I am the son of man, he is saying, I am the representative of humanity to stand before God because I am both the son of Joseph and the son of God. And you will see God's message, his hope, his, his deliverance coming up and down on me. I am the bridge between humanity and the divine. I am the one to stand in between this gap. That's what he says when he calls himself the son of God. Jesus is claiming to be the representative that makes it possible for humanity to get to God and for heaven to get to us. He bridges that gap. And so what I want to encourage you today is to think about that. To change, to be introduced to Jesus as he is, the son of Joseph, the son of God, the son of man that he has bridged that gap between us. He went the distance that we could not go simply because he can and only he can. Here's the idea that God, Jesus, as the son of man, has made it possible for us to become the children of God, the sons and the daughters of the divine to be redeemed and rescued and adopted. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. So do you believe that? One of my favorite Christmas movies, as I am sure is many of your favorite Christmas movies, is the movie Elf, all right? And for a number of reasons, that's one of my favorites. It's not my favorite. My favorite is Christmas Story, but Elf would be probably second. And I like it because of all the funny things. I like all the funny things. Like when he sees... um, that girl elf that he likes, and he describes uh, how he likes her. That's funny, his tongue swells up. I think that's really funny. Um, I think it's funny when he says that the yellow calves don't stop, You know, yellow ones don't stop. I think all that's funny. But I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Have you ever noticed, probably not, that the, this theme that I just shared with you is the theme of that movie? It is the underlying concept in the movie. The conflict in the story arises when Buddy the elf realizes that Papa Elf is not his father, that he is adopted, he is a human, he is not an elf. So that makes him start a journey, conflict, right? It's all building up there in which he discovers that Walter Hobbs on the naughty list is his father. And so he has this journey in which he is trying to reconnect with his real, his his biological, not his real. Uh, Adopted dads are just as real. His biological dad, right? His biological father in that way, that he's going to connect in that way. But that's, that's a weird journey. And so the conflict arises when he finds out he's human, you know, he falls down. And then the conflict is resolved in Central Park when there's that super heartwarming scene, right? When Walter Hobbs tells Buddy the Elf that he is chemically unbalanced and he says some other things. Here's what he says. Buddy, something I, I have to tell you right now. I didn't mean anything I said back there, not a word. You may be a little uh, uh, chemically unbalanced, but you have been right about a lot of things and I don't want you to leave. And then here's the important part, think about it. He says, you are my son and I love you. Those are his words, that's what says, you are my son. It's not needed in the movie, but it is said. You know why? Because it matters, because it impacts, because it's the resolution to the conflict of the story. It turns out in a much realer way, a real way that impacts our lives and our souls for all of eternity, that the son of Joseph was not received well by his own people. He came into his own, but his own did not recognize him. They did not receive him. But it also turns out that the son of God was right about a lot of things. And that if we will trust him, if we will believe him, then we can be sons and daughters of God. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.